Alright, Psalm 119, starting at verse 129. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your word gives me light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the oppression of men, that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Righteous are you, O Lord, and your laws are right. The statutes you've laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is everlasting, and your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands are my delight. Your statutes are forever right. Give me understanding that I may live. I call out with all my heart, answer me, O Lord, and I will obey your decrees. I call out to you, save me, and I will keep your statutes. Arise before the dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promises. Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your laws. Those who devise wicked schemes are near, but they are far from your law. Yet you are near, O Lord, and all your, and all your commands are true. Long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. Uh, when I was in school, uh, as just about everyone did, in uh, one of our classes, I, can't, uh, I think it was English, but I can't remember what year, uh, we studied the movie The Truman Show. I think everyone did at school, uh, and, and if you didn't, you maybe went to school before it came out. Uh, it's just about compulsory. Everyone studies The Truman Show. Uh, part of the reason, because it's just a great movie. Uh, it is a good movie. Uh, the story of poor old Truman uh, going about his life thinking that, that everything is okay, that everything is normal uh, with his life and with the world around him. Or is it? Because, of course, the, the viewer knows something else. The viewer knows that, that nothing that Truman sees is real, that actually everything about his world is fake. It's all a TV set. Truman's life is actually the ultimate reality TV show. <laughs> and every moment of his life is viewed by millions of people around the world. And over the course of the movie, Truman realises this. He realises that, that nothing's real, that nothing around him can be trusted. His, his wife, his friends, his work, even his coffee shop, his whole town, all of it's fake. Trust nothing, question everything is really the message of the movie. And that's the path to real life. Trust nothing and question everything. And in that way, 
Essentially, The Truman Show is a story of our day, isn't it? It teaches us the philosophy of our time. Trust nothing. Question everything. That, that is our time, postmodernism in all its glory. Everything is up for grabs. And that leads us to some funny places. We've seen over the last few years a resurgence in belief that the moon landings were faked. It's, it's come back. We see uh, Holocaust deniers uh, again resurging. Uh, unbelievably enough, there's been an enormous uptick in the number of people who think that the earth is flat. <laughs> it's up for grabs. Why not? Everything's up for grabs. So what about the Bible? Can we trust it? Should we trust it? It's not a new question, of course. Uh, in the, the 1700s, Voltaire, the French writer and philosopher and atheist, uh, was quoted as saying, another century and there will not be a Bible on the earth. Uh, he was wrong, clearly. And in even greater irony, his house was later turned into the headquarters of the Bible Society. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. It's just brilliant, isn't it? It was actually a site where they had a printing press. Obviously, the Bible's still around. Obviously, Voltaire was wrong. But can we trust it? Can we truly trust what it says? That, that book that is in your hands or on your phone or in your pew... Can you really trust what it is, what it says? Well, today we will hopefully find out. Uh, this question is really framed in a whole bunch of different ways at different times. We're going to investigate a few of the key ones this morning. And the first is the challenge, well, that the Bible was edited. That the Bible was edited. Uh, this is a view that's been around for a long time, but it really came back a few years ago when Dan Brown uh, wrote The Da Vinci Code. Uh, and claimed that everything in there was fact. Essentially, the premise behind this challenge is this. Around the year 350 AD, so well after the events of the New Testament, the church got together, all the, the conservative church leaders met uh, to sit down and decide, well, what's going to be in the Bible? Which books do we think we agree with? And of course, uh, it's assumed that they did this selfishly. Selfishly that they thought they'll, they'll gather the books which preserve their own power and their own influence. And so then possibly valid books, such as the Gospel of Barnabas or Mary or Thomas or Judas or others, were thrown out because they challenged the church. So too the book uh, of Enoch, uh, the Apocrypha, etc., etc. And so the question raised then is, if that's the case, if the Bible was edited like that, how could we possibly trust it? How could we possibly trust that what we've got is actually all the truth? What about all that other stuff out there? Well, let's just investigate that a little bit. Uh, it is true that the church met. The Emperor Constantine says we need to get together as a church and sort some stuff out. And so the church did meet. Uh, in 325 AD in Nicaea, the famous Council of Nicaea, but they didn't actually talk about the Bible. <laughs> They had actually more pressing issues that they needed to sort out at the time. It was only later, in Hippo in 393 and Carthage in 397, that the church actually said, yeah, we, we probably should write down a list of what books are in the Bible. Now, we assume that that meeting was very tense. Uh, we assume it was very controversial and that there was lots of conflict, but actually when we read the records, the exact opposite seems to be true. It, it actually seems to be a non-event for discussion because it was very clear there to all who were present 
which books were actually legit, which books were authentic and should be included and which books should just be thrown out and ignored. When it came to the Old Testament, it was very easy. That had been confirmed a couple hundred years before Jesus uh, even came. So there were no arguments there. Everyone had the same Old Testament, no questions. But neither were there any questions about the New Testament. Uh, The criteria they set were very simple. The book had to be either written by or closely linked to an apostle. It had to be early, that is, whilst an apostle was still alive, that is, before the year 100 AD. And it had to be widely known. Uh, Lots of people, lots of areas had to have received and and heard of this book. They're not exactly the hardest criteria, are they? (laughs) They they didn't set the bar too high, they're not outrageous. Neither are those things hard to determine. And that's how they decided. Uh, I don't know about you, but I love Dr Zeus. (laughs) I assume everyone has grown up with Dr Zeus, we're, we're that generation. We have heaps of his books at home and I love them. Uh, We've got all the classics and I love reading them to the kids. But as much as I love them, sorry, say I love them so much, I thought, you know what, I'm going to try and imitate Dr Zeus. I'm going to write my own Dr Zeus book. Say I did that, it went pretty well, I'm pretty pleased with my efforts, I think I could probably make a buck out of this. I'm going to publish it. Well, no one knows my name, it's not going to work. So I go and publish that book under Dr Zeus's name, worldwide, and say, look, it's actually a lost manuscript. I've just discovered it. It's actually Dr Zeus. How do you reckon that's going to go? I'm guessing not well. One, I'm not Dr Zeus. I love his work, but I don't think I could ever imitate it. And I'm sure that if I tried, everyone would know it. Uh, Two, no one's ever going to buy it. Because we buy Dr Zeus because they're classics because we've heard of them, we know them. But thirdly, surely there's going to be questions. (laughs) How is it that a manuscript of Dr Zeus survived unheard of for 50 years and then was discovered in Olveston? (laughs) What's the chance of that? It's not terribly plausible, is it? It's not going to succeed. And so it was with the Bible. It was very obvious which were the original. We have 27 books here which all agree, which are very harmonious, which were known by by huge numbers of people across the ancient world. They're very old, very reliable and broadly accepted. On the other hand, we have dozens of other books which just are different. They're full of weird and and fantastical details and events. Uh, They completely contradict not only the books that we agree on but all the other books as well. They even contradict themselves often. They're full of uh, doubtful, even plainly dishonest authorship. Uh, They only turned up years after Jesus uh, left and hardly anyone have ever heard of them. (laughs) So what are we going to do with them? Well, clearly they're not the same, are they? And so uncontroversially those books were rejected. Now if you still think that that's unfair, go and read them. (laughs) Uh, You can find them on the net, They're, they're easily available and compare them to the Bible. They just don't stack up. I mean, imagine you, you, you have a kid's birthday party. You've got 20 kids there. Uh, they're all playing really nicely, really harmoniously. So all the parents get, you know, because parents come to kids' birthday parties today, I've recently discovered. All the parents get to kick back and eat party food. But then there's a dust-up. You know, the kids have a bit of a fight. You weigh it in and you sort it out 
and you find out that 19 kids are telling exactly the same story and that one's different. I mean, who are you going to believe? <laughs> who are you going to suspect? You're probably going to know exactly who's at fault, aren't you? Well, so it is with the Bible. We have 27 books which all agree. I mean, and they're not uh, copies of one another. They're books written by clearly different people at clearly different places and times, but they agree. They're on, they're on the same page, so to speak. And then over here we have all these others who are all over the place. Who are we going to believe? Who are we going to trust? So is the Bible edited? Well, the answer is really yes. But yes, logically and consistently and with broad agreement. And that means you can trust what's in your hands. You can trust the Bible that you have. It's not missing anything. Uh, it's not lacking something that you would need. It's all there. Uh, if you never read one of these alternative Gospels, you're not going to miss out on anything. If you, if you never pick on uh, one up, uh, you're not going to have lost anything. And even if you do, there's very little that you would gain there. And so when the next new Gospel is found, as it probably will be in the few, next few years, uh, when it's discovered to be full of new controversies and ideas, feel free to ignore it. <laughs> Don't pay any attention. It doesn't matter. They all claim some crazy idea that Jesus was married, that he had kids, that he flew to the moon. Uh, that's actually le- legitimately in one. Uh, that he travelled to Britain or South America, that he gave secret instructions to Judas, that he commended Muhammad, who was amazingly born 700 years after Jesus. They all make these crazy claims and they're not true. They're fiction. And we can know so because we have the Bible. The authentic, uh, written by eyewitnesses, written soon after Jesus' death, collection of books. And they tell us the truth. Okay then, if we have the books right, what about their content? What about their content? How do we know if we have them right? I mean, after all, they're old, aren't they? They're really old. Could they have been corrupted? Could bits have been lost? Well, what about the difficulty of translating them, the the inherent inaccuracy in translations? Well, there is something to this. I mean, manuscripts that we have of the Bible are old. (laughs) In fact, they're very old. We've just let our our computer guy, which is unfortunate, uh, because I've got a picture of one of the the fragments we discovered recently uh, of Mark's Gospel. This was discovered... Last year, I believe, uh, it's dated around 100 to 150 AD. There it is, that's what it looks like. It's been mounted on glass. Uh, it's not terribly impressive, is it? <laughs> it's, it's quite small. Uh, it's about yay big. Uh, it's, it's written on both sides. It's not that easy to pick out. It's not terribly impressive uh, until you remember that it's 1850 years old and it's been sitting all that time in a rubbish dump. (laughs) So that's not too bad, actually. Yeah, that's all good. Uh, What it says, I didn't read this, someone else translated it for me, but it says, uh, Mark 1, verse 8, I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Which, if you turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 8, is exactly what your Bible says, which is very helpful. So our manuscripts aren't terribly impressive, but it's also true that translation is hard, isn't it? I mean, that's why our Bibles read differently. That's why every few years there's slightly different translations 
coming out. But it's also true that both of those issues are vastly over-exaggerated. Take the age, take the condition of our manuscripts. Uh, Did anyone here study Virgil at school? You're probably going to have to go a long way back. (laughs) Uh, Well, you might have heard of Virgil's Aeneid, famous poem, uh, story, very broadly read, at least up until approximately 50 years ago, uh, roughly the same length as all four Gospels put together. Now, no one doubts the existence of Virgil. No one doubts uh, what we have and the, the story as we have it. But of that story, we only have three manuscripts, three complete manuscripts. We've got seven partial manuscripts of it and we have 20 small fragments of it. Not a lot of witness and yet it's never really been called into question. What about the New Testament? Well, of the New Testament, we have four manuscripts, complete ones. We have 340 partial manuscripts. Now, these can be uh, as much as whole Gospels, uh, collections of several letters of Paul. We have over 5,800 fragments of the New Testament, Uh, fragments ranging from very short ones, like that one from Mark, uh, to very long ones, whole chapters, even multiple chapters. See, the thing is, putting all of those together, we actually have every verse of the New Testament in several different places and forms. We have it from different times. We have it in different geographical locations. We have it in different languages. And so when we stick this enormous puzzle all together, what we have at the end is a very accurate manuscript of our Bible. And the thing is, it's getting more accurate. Because every year we discover more of these fragments. Uh, They're analysed, they're they're added to this body of knowledge. And so our Bible is continually getting more accurate. But of course, we're not talking about English manuscripts, are we? Uh, You probably couldn't see it, that was in Greek. We're talking about original languages, we're talking about Hebrew, we're talking about Greek, we're talking about Aramaic, hard to translate. What about translation difficulties? What is true, translation is hard. Uh, It's why our South Africans talk funny. It's why why our Dutch jokes don't make sense. But we can still understand each other, can't we? Mostly, roughly. We, we We can still communicate. We can still understand each other, communicate well enough. Well, so too it is with the Bible. Yeah, translation is hard. But we are good enough at it that we can actually do it really well. Uh, There are differences in translations, but if you compare all the the, the modern translations that we have, not a single one of the differences actually changes anything we know about God or even any major doctrine. Today around the world there are literally thousands of people who are spending great chunks, even the whole of their lives, dedicated to translating the Bible and to doing it well. Our translations are good. We can know what the Bible says. I mean, take, for example, your own text messages. Uh, You get a text from your wife tomorrow afternoon at work. Could you stop by the ship on the way home to get some milk? (laughs) Now, I guarantee you are not going to drive to the wharf. You're not going to drive to the port in Burnie and board a ship and demand some milk. You're going to go to the shop and you're going to buy two litres and your wife is going to tell you when you get home, why didn't you buy three? See, we're able to figure it out, aren't we? We can use our intuition, we can use our brains. God gave them to us. And if we can do that in a few seconds, then surely thousands of Bible translators working 
with all their qualifications over many, many years, can give to us an accurate translation, even of a very ancient text. You can go to your Bible and you do not need to worry about whether it is accurate. What it says, you can trust. What its writer wrote 1900 plus years ago is what you have and what he meant is what you read. It is there, it is plain, it is understandable and you can trust it. So the Bible is accurate, the Bible is consistent but should you do it? Why should you do it? I mean, why should a book that is 2,000 years old tell you how to live your life? What authority does it have? Well, we have a very simple answer to that. Uh, and it's encapsulated in our kids' songs, isn't it? Because the Bible tells me so. Because the Bible actually claims its own authority. Uh, we didn't read Psalm, uh, verse 4 of Psalm 119, but, but David uh, records there, you have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. He's talking about the Old Testament, about the law. He says it's authoritative, it, it's to be obeyed. It's not only Old Testament writers who thought such. Jesus himself said this about the Old Testament in Luke 24. He said, Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. That is, the whole Old Testament. All of it matters. All of it must come to be. That's why when you read uh, through the Gospels, Jesus appeals to it so often. I mean, how many times does he say, have you not read? Is it not written? In John 10, 35, he, he plainly says, Scripture cannot be broken. So the Bible matters, the Bible carries authority. But it's not just the Old Testament, it's the New Testament as well. We read earlier Jesus' final words to his followers and he said there, go, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. His words have ongoing authority for all disciples of all time. But it's not only Jesus, it's the apostles as well. That's why Paul can write in one of his letters, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command, i.e. it bears authority. That's why Peter in his letter can admit, yeah, Paul's hard to read, Paul's hard to understand, it's complex stuff. But despite its complexities, it's not to be distorted because it's on the same level as Scripture. That is, it carries authority. So what's that, that, that all telling us? It's telling us the Bible says it's authoritative. You should obey it. It carries authority. But isn't that an issue in itself? The Bible is authoritative. Who says? The Bible. It's, it, it, it's circular reasoning, isn't it? The, the Bible is testifying to its own authority. And so people will point that out. But it's not rational to believe something that testifies to its own authority. It's not right. But who says so? It's not rational to believe circular reasoning. Why? Because that's what rationalism says. Do you see the issue there as well? That's also circular reasoning. Rationalism appeals to rationalism. And so we end up actually with the same problem. But actually at the end of the day, circular reasoning, the Bible testifying to its own authority, is no issue. See, if the Bible's authority was to be confirmed by something outside of it, by something else, then that would be the higher authority. It would be appealing to something greater, wouldn't it? And that would mean that the Bible is less. 
and that this authority is more important. But no such thing actually happens. We have no external confirmation of the Bible's authority. It is the authority. It stands highest because it, as it says to us, is God's living word. And that, I think, is the crunch. Because what lurks behind this objection, what lurks behind this challenge is a concern that's, that's less intellectual and really more moral. See, if the Bible is true, if the Bible is authoritative, there's a great implication there, isn't there? We, we unpacked it in the kids' talk. If the Bible is authoritative, it means you need to do what it says. <laughs> if, it, if, it, if it carries authority, you need to obey it. It must be done. That's why we, we see people ch- challenging climate change today, isn't it? I mean, if, if climate change is true, we need to change how we live. <laughs> if, if our actions, if our patterns of living are screwing up the world, then we need to change how we live. And that's going to be hard and it's going to be costly, it's going to be inconvenient, so it's just easier to deny climate change, <laughs> to, to stick our heads in the sand and do nothing. Well, so it is with the Bible. If the Bible is authoritative, there are consequences and they're going to be costly. They're going to be hard. They're going to be confronting. It's so much easier to deny its authority and do nothing. But that misses the point, doesn't it? And it misses the fact that the consequences are good. Yes, it's true that the Bible has authority. Yes, it's true that it calls us to repentance and submission and obedience and self-denial. But... It is also true that it promises so much more than it asks. The Bible promises nearness to God. This is what it says in John chapter 1. To all who received him, that is Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not just acquaintances, but part of the family, close to God. Promises eternity. This is what Peter said to Jesus. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The Bible promises hope, Hebrews chapter 5. We who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. The Bible promises restoration, Revelation 21. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Yes, the Bible is authoritative. Yes, it asks for submission and self-denial and obedience, but it promises so much more than it asks. What it offers is rich and good and eternal. It holds out forgiveness and life and eternity with Jesus, simply, uh, received simply through accepting and through believing. Live under the Bible's authority. It is the living word of God as it testifies It's not for us to sit over in judgment but to sit under in submission. We we don't come to the Bible and think, is it right, is it good, Is is it true? We come to it and say, teach me how to live. Teach me about God. So trust your Bible and use it. Allow it to, to speak into it and shape your life. Fill your life with it, embrace it, immerse yourself in it and it will transform you. It will teach you and and unveil all these great things about God for you and it will prepare you 
for an eternity with God. The Bible is trustworthy, so love it. We didn't read all of Psalm 119, but it might be a great thing to go home and do because what you will see time and time again is exactly the same. David loves his Bible. (laughs) He loves his Bible. He, He speaks of how wonderful it is, how delightful it is, how much he longs for it, how much he yearns for its truth. And when you read your Bible, you will see the same. Most of these objections will just disappear, will fall away when you read it and see what it tells you. Because in this word you see God. Don't forget what this book actually is. This, This book is God's story of your life. Well, not just your life, the life of the world. It is his letter to you of his ways, of how he works, of what he's doing, of who he is, of how great his love for you is of how great a purpose he has for you. Embrace this word and love it. Martin Luther said, the Bible is a lion. You don't need to defend it. You simply let it out of its cage. So trust it and let it out to do its work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a precious gift you have given us in the Bible, in your word. Father, in it we have everything we need to know of you and of ourselves and of our world and of eternity. Father, in it we find your words of eternal life. We find your words leading us to the full life that you've intended for us, the right life, living to please you and live with you. So, Father, help us to trust your word and help us to submit ourselves to it. Father, rule our lives by your word, shape us by it, fill us with it and help us to love it and help us to lean on it and in it to lean on you. In Jesus' name, Amen.